Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right on KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. We have Bayou City Waterkeepers Legal Director Christian Schlemmer, as well as former congressman and presidential candidate Dennis Kucinich with us today. What are the topics that we're covering today? Obamacare once again is saved by the Supreme Court after the red state assault that would have hurt more of their own citizens. Texas wasted a lot of money of that, your money. This is not a joke. This is what Texans must live through, a governor and his party that has Texas in a state of disarray, a failing grid. Hey, do you want to change? Bayou City Waterkeepers Legal Director Christian Schlemmer discusses their grassroots effort and successes to keep water clean and flood control. Dennis Kucinich spoke about the division of light and power. He was not shy about discussing ethics in our political system. But before we get started, please remember to keep our community radio station KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell people about it. 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. Please go to kpft.org and continue to support us. We need those support dollars. Please do so in the name of politics done right kpft.org keep this 100,000 watt station above the fold lastly remember you can get politics done right mondays through fridays on facebook live on facebook.com slash politics done right or on youtube live at politics done slash youtube please do not forget to follow me on twitter for updates my handle is at egberto willies at e-g-b-e-r-t-o-w-i-l-l-i-e-s Obamacare lives. The Supreme Court is still attempting not to look at it just as it is just a right wing bat crazy court. But rest assured that it didn't win because of the politics of the Supreme Court. It probably won because of the politics of pragmatism and a loss of Obamacare right now would have ensured the entire defeat of the Republican Party in 2022 because what we would run on is the Republicans have taken away your health care and they are going to let you die. Check it out and then we'll take it on the other side. For the third time, the U.S. Supreme Court has spared Obamacare from challenges, this time from a group of red states who said the individual mandate was unconstitutional and could not be upheld as a legitimate use of Congress's taxing authority because Congress had later set that tax penalty, if you didn't buy insurance, at zero. But today, in a 7-2 to two decision, the Supreme Court simply says that the states who challenged it didn't have the legal standing to bring this case. In other words, they've thrown the case out of 
without ruling on the underlying issue. They basically say that the red states didn't demonstrate that they were injured enough by the Obamacare surviving to be able to bring this challenge into court. Now, the Supreme Court in recent years has been very picky about groups that can come into court, what's what's known for the lawyers as legal standing, and that's the basis of this decision. So this is not a decision on the merits. This is simply a decision saying these states didn't have the uh, legal standing to bring this case. So what this does is it means that in the future, other states could try again the same legal challenge. And if they can find enough ways to get people together and cobble up another case, Obamacare could face yet another challenge. But for now, Obamacare survives again, a seven to two decision from the Supreme Court rejecting this challenge without ruling on the underlying case. While some lawyers are disputing whether uh, other red states could cobble up some other reason to come up and go against what the Supreme Court said, which is that the they didn't have enough standing, that they didn't show enough damage or whatever, uh, I, I tend to agree with him. I do believe that uh, the Supreme Court has left the door open so that when the economy is rejiggered some, if somehow Republicans are able to take over the economy in some manner, that they could come and address this and our path to single payer, our path to Medicare for all, they still leave the option, that conversion of Obamacare, which is easier to convert to a single payer system and Medicare for all that sort of stuff, they would chop that path. In other words, that no no part of that ruling uh, makes it that that possibility wouldn't occur. But anyhow, for the time being, Obamacare, once again, is safe. If there is one thing we know here in Texas, our governor, Greg Abbott, has his priorities right. You know, uh, you know what he wanted to do, right? He's He feels we need to keep those people out of Texas. Those brown people need to keep out of Texas. All those folks coming from down south need to keep themselves out of Texas. So what does he think he's going to do? He's going to build a wall. Abbott wants to build a border wall. Where have we heard that before? God help us. It's a Republican primary season in Texas, and this man wants to build a wall. But guess what? Where is Where are his priorities? Check this out. ERCOT, the, the Electricity Reliable System, tells us today, you remember that freeze that you had? It got real cold and we couldn't power you? Our grid went down and over 700 Texans died. Well, now guess what? In Texas, it's no longer the deep freeze. It's the deep heat. And people need their cooling. And guess what? The grid is falling apart again. And they're asking you, please turn your your air conditioner up to 78. We can't cool all you folks. And by the way, for those of you who have pools, Please turn those pumps off because the independent ERCOT, the independent Texas grid, you know we do things big in Texas. The independent Texas grid can no longer take care of you. So big Texas, energy capital of the world, we have all the oil you may need. We have all the gas you may need, but we somehow can't turn any of those fossil fuels and the heat of Texas and the wind 
into electricity. We just can't do it. But we want to build a wall. Look, if we ain't got any electricity, we don't need a wall. Nobody's coming here if we can't keep them cool or keep them warm. You know, we are now the laughing stock of the rest of the country. And guess who did a great job showing that, uh, oh, Texas is a, what a funny place. Listen to what Brian Williams had to say. Allow us to introduce you to the state of Texas. And while I know you know Texas, the kind of rootin' tootin' Texas, the everything's bigger in Texas, the don't mess with Texas, the voter suppression is bigger in Texas, you know that Texas. But lately, and under their Trumper governor, Greg Abbott, Texas is way more like a contestant on The Bachelorette. Sensitive, putting itself out there, being all vulnerable. First, there was the winter storm. A new investigation by BuzzFeed showed the death toll from that storm revised up at around 700 souls. The entire Texas power grid failed. Ted Cruz flew the coop for Cancun until he was reminded he represented Texas in the Senate. There's trouble in Texas once again. Texans are being warned right there in big oil country, the energy cradle of America, that they must cut back on electricity this week or the lights are going to go out again. By the way, the utility provider there is called ERCOT and to prove that Texans have a sense of humor, ERCOT stands for the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. But because the electricity is not reliable in Texas, people there are being told to set thermostats to 78, turn off lights and pool pumps, God forbid, because of the power plants that are offline and the grid that remains endangered. And then just tonight, enter Blair Erskine. She's a writer and a comedian who usually within hours of a major news story, especially there, if there are officials to be parodied, she is up with a new video, and then tonight she did not disappoint. Blair Erskine, fake spokesperson for the Texas Power Grid. That's right, and thank you so much for having me. Um, You know, we got a tight, hot little grid out there, and we got to take care of it, or it's going bust, okay? We can't um, we can't be having that. That'll be a mess. So, um, we're just asking the people of Texas to make small sacrifices, just little sacrifices, no blood or anything like that. Um, you know, there's that old saying, you can't have the rainbow without the rain, right? Well, you can't have light without in, until we until we figure out what's going on out there, okay? Because Texas is set up on a power grid, and what a power grid um, does, what a power grid is, is um, it, well, it's something different to everybody, and that's what you got to understand. I mean, would you rather have AC or would you rather have AOC? And think about that for um, a little bit and it'll start to make sense. Um, so really all we're asking the people of Texas to do is to unplug, <laughs> just unplug, just relax. You know, everybody's got to unplug sometimes. And if you don't unplug, um, God's going to find a way to make you unplug. And, um, you know, in this, in this scenario, <laughs> um, we are God. Sadly, a ton of people tonight thought that was real. If this wasn't so serious, it would be funny. I mean, look, this isn't a problem just in Texas. This is a problem in every single state where the new Republican Party, the one that is based on ignorance, the one that is based on no science, the one that is based on keeping their their pew dumb, the one that is based on lying to their people. This is what's happening throughout the things. What I don't get is what is their second move? 
Because after you govern based on lies, after you govern based on stupidity, after you govern where people's the where people's assets are ultimately declining, except for the plutocracy that is, where do you go from there? You just go to the next lie? You just go to the next step? Look, folks, um, this is this is not really meant to be funny. This is actually pretty damn serious. Uh, the Republican Party has become a further clear and present danger to everybody, Republicans included. Today, we are going to prove that grassroots work, that being engaged work. We are honored today to be with the legal director and waterkeeper for Bayou City Waterkeepers, Kristen Schlemmer. How are you doing today? I'm I'm great. How are you doing? I am doing great. Let me tell you, um, when I heard about your organization, you know, I'm here in Houston, too, and you guys cover entirely Harris County to make sure that we can actually touch the waters throughout our town, our city. And then I learned about all that you've done. So I want to say, first of all, thank you. And then secondly, for our program, I think you are going to show that civic engagement works. So why, first of all, don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm from Houston. I grew up in Kingwood and other parts of Houston, actually, but I thought I'd mention Kingwood since I- Yes, because that's where I'm from. Yeah. Yeah. Graduated from Kingwood High School in 2000 and then left thinking that I may uh, never come back. I went to Austin, UT Austin for college, moved to New Orleans right after Katrina for law school. Um, And the experience of being in law school, um, seeing a city go through disaster recovery, um, and just maybe a persistent mother um, made me start thinking about coming back home. So in 2012, I moved back here and um, I feel like I may never leave. I'm really, I'm really happy to be here in Houston and doing the work that I'm doing. Well, well, I, I think Houston is thankful as well. And by the way, I graduated from the University of Texas. My daughter graduated from the University of Texas. My daughter went to Kingwood High and graduated from Kingwood High. So, oh, wow. Great. Great symbiosis. Anyway, um, tell us a little bit about uh, this huge. uh, Well, first of all, how did you get into uh, understanding what the city of Houston was doing with its water situation, its sewage situation? Uh, So as an organization, Bayou City Waterkeeper requested a ton of public data. Um, And we knew that existed because the city of Houston, for each of its 39 wastewater treatment plants, has to have a permit from the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. And a condition of those permits is that every time they have an overflow from their system, and an overflow um, is kind of my shorthand for any time wastewater or sewage leaves the system before going through treatment, um, anytime that happens, the city of Houston is supposed to report it. To the, to the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. So um, when we requested this public data, we got back um, a very, very long spreadsheet or series of spreadsheets that lists dates and locations and 
uh, volume in terms of gallons and um, yeah, gave us a better sense of how many overflows were happening across the city of Houston over um, a several year a time period. Now, in, in getting and uh, why did you request the data? I mean, uh, just out of the blue or because they did you have this Bayou City Water Keeper organization just marshalling uh, throughout the state, the, 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 the county to do this? What was like the genesis of this? Yeah, so um, we knew just from research done by other entities um, that sanitary sewer overflows were a problem in the city of Houston. Um, this has been something that I think folks that are plugged into water issues just kind of know, um, partly because water quality data in our bayous and out in Galveston Bay periodically shows um, high rates of fecal pollution. And um, one source of that typically is overflows from wastewater treatment systems. Um, in addition to just kind of folks across the water and environmental um, legal community knowing that this is a problem in Houston. Uh, this is a problem actually across the United States um, in lots of other cities. Um, and the reason for that is that a lot of cities developed uh, kind of on similar cycles to where uh, we all have our, you know, pipes and things that are under the ground are getting old and need to be replaced. Um, but not enough money is being dedicated to that. And so that creates problems like what we what we found in Houston. Now, before you ask them to pull the data, did you go ahead and do water tests throughout or bayous, throughout or rivers, et cetera, that, cross, that crisscrosses the county? Our organization didn't, um, but other, other entities across our region have. Um, one would be like the stream team housed under the HGAC. And um, I think Bayou Preservation Association also has some stream team volunteers. Um, but really... What's interesting about this kind of lawsuit is, you know, it, what this turned into was a lawsuit is that the city of Houston already is telling us we have released sewage when we weren't supposed to. So, um, and we did it a thousand, you know, thousands of times. Um, so it makes it to where you don't exactly have to go out and do that sampling to know it's a problem um, or, you know, to know how specifically it is a problem. Um because just based on what's written on paper, you know that it's a really big problem. That is interesting. So you're saying that they they weren't really trying to hide anything. They were telling you as they re, they had these mishaps, they told you. Now, did they inform the public at the time that these mishaps occurs to ensure that if it's near, let's say, whatever bayou, people know not to get into their canoes and go into that bayou? In most cases, no. Um, the only times that the city of Houston has to notify the public is when the overflow is over a certain threshold. I think it's a hundred thousand gallons. Uh -huh. I mean, that may be not exactly right. Um, but that's pretty big. And we see those, um, and I mean, though, when I say the public is notified, it's, if you're on the right, um, subscribe to the right email list with the city of Houston, which I am. I will get like their little press release saying that, you know, after tropical storm Imelda, we had 250,000 gallons of um, untreated sewage that was released at, you know, University of Houston downtown, or, for example. Um, but it's only really those really, really big overflows that are reported to the public. The rest just kind of goes in a document that is technically public data, but is difficult to access. 
Well, yeah, that is how you know they have a tendency to do that, right? Release it in a little little spot in a newspaper or something, and they fulfill their legal requirements. Nobody really sees it, and and it goes on from there. Except if we have watchdogs like Bayou City Waterkeeper who make sure to further tell the people that hey, this is what happened, and you need to do something about it. Tell us a little bit about the lawsuit proper now. In other words, how did you go about it, and how did you go about getting that big win? So the lawsuit was filed under the Clean Water Act, and a cool feature of the Clean Water Act and other federal environmental laws is there's something called a citizen suit provision. So that means that we don't have to wait around for a federal or state environmental agency to take enforcement action against polluters. Um, In a lot of cases, groups like ours, people, you know, working together um, or alone can, you know, work with a lawyer and get a lawsuit on file um, to go target pollution themselves. What you have to do, though, before you can um, file this lawsuit and stand in the shoes of an environmental enforcer is serve what is called a notice of intent to sue. And that's where you you send the letter to the polluter. In this case, it was the city of Houston, along with federal and state environmental regulators saying, hey, In 60 days, we plan to file a lawsuit against you. Here's the basis of that lawsuit. Um, And kind of the reason there's this procedural hurdle is because it alerts the federal and state environmental regulators to the problem, lets them know, um, hey, here's your chance to do something. And if you don't, we're going to move forward. So in this case, actually, the Environmental Protection Agency at the federal level and the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality at the state level did choose to file an enforcement action um, 59 days after we gave them our 60-day notice of intent to sue. Um, so that is uh, that enforcement action moved forward, and we intervened in it. Uh, it's a legal term. We were called interveners um, and participated in that enforcement action. Um, and so that was back in 2018 when it was filed. And basically from 2018 until... Uh, The spring of 2021, there's been this uh, settlement called a consent decree that was negotiated. And um, we've been involved at different points, kind of most very much as an outside advocate, um, pushing for more transparency in the process, um, better community engagement, and um, most, and, and sorry, and through And also throughout this process, we've been very focused on environmental injustices in the sanitary sewer overflow problems, because those are all kind of categories of things that weren't being addressed by either the city of Houston or by the regulators who filed this environmental enforcement action. Now, they committed to $2 billion. Is that $2 billion in improvements? And if that is $2 billion in improvements, who tells or ensures that that $2 billion go to solve the problems that you sued them for in the first place? Yeah, so that is $2 billion in improvements. Um, the consent decree, that's the settlement, the, the document kind of embodying the settlement that was filed with the court and approved by the court, um, spells out certain things that the city of Houston has to do. Um, but it also, some of those things that the city of Houston has to do are a little bit fuzzy. They require further planning, further reporting. Um, So there's a few checks on that. One is, you know, the presence of the EPA and the TCEQ. Um, They have some interest in making sure that the city of Houston uh, meets the obligations that it's um, promised to meet. Um, The court also plays a role here. If there's anything that the city of Houston isn't doing, if it's behind schedule, 
um, both the EPA and the state of Texas, as well as us as interveners can go back to the court and ask them to order the city of Houston to get moving. And we can also ask um, the court to impose additional penalties on the city of Houston. Um, there's, there's specific penalties spelled out in this settlement document. Um, and then last, uh, I kind of already mentioned our role, but you know we are another check on the city of Houston actually doing what it's supposed to do. Um, our greatest hope is that after spending $2 billion over the next 15 years, that we will see a discernible difference in the number of overflows reported. Um, hopefully that number is much closer to zero. And um, the cool thing about the settlement is now every month, instead of having to go request public information um, from uh, Austin, we are getting reports emailed to us um, listing out how many overflows there were and what, what the volume of those overflows are. And so that's something we're working on, uh, making sure that we're sharing with the public on a monthly basis. Um, that's just another another check on, on the whole process. You're good because that was my other question. I was going to ask you, hey, uh, or have you seen new overflow data and has it gone down? Have it gone down or not? So uh, my next question is now that you're getting the uh, overflow data uh, voluntarily on a monthly basis, are you have you seen any differences? Are they trying to be better? I haven't seen differences yet, though we've only gotten one month of data since the final settlement was only um, approved. I think it was in April. Um, so, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to rush to criticize the city just yet. I think once we get to the six month mark, that's when we can start to see if there's a discernible difference. Um, rainstorms aren't the only reason that we have these overflows, but they can influence the number of overflows in a month. So I imagine um, damage equipment as well. Uh, they have old equipment that's damaged. That could be an issue as well. Now, um, as you said, uh, you, you, you don't have enough data yet to, to make that assessment. Have you known or seen between that time that they've actually started doing any work to mitigate the problems that have originally caused those discharges? So the city of Houston says, um, even before the consent decree was signed, they said that they were already getting started on the projects that the consent decree was going to require of them. Um, that's something that I'm just taking them at their word. I, I, I don't know um, if, you know, to what extent they've been moving forward. But I mean, I think that they always are probably doing a little bit of work on their sanitary sewer system. Their budget reflects that they're going to be doing a lot more work. Um, so this is something that, you know, one of the things we're going to have to monitor over, you know, the coming months and coming years. Okay, you do some other work as well. You actually make sure that developers don't uh, develop in areas where it will, uh, it would make our water conditions worse, whether that be flooding or pollution. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the primary way we do this work, um, though there's a few facets to it, um, is through what's called the Wetland Watch Program. And that's, um, you know, often where that begins is a community member gives us a call or sends us an email and says, hey, um, there's something going on next door um, or, you know, to next door to my subdivision. Um, there is an area that I know floods a lot, really close to the bayou. And it now looks like they're going to put a housing development there. What's going on? Um, and so we'll take a look at it. And often that's, um, you know, we start out with a desktop analysis. There's so many different mapping tools. 
um, available uh, from federal and state agencies. And we'll see first, are there wetlands on that property? And the reason we look at that is um, the Clean Water Act. The Clean Water Act has a comprehensive regulatory program that um, requires developers to get permits in many circumstances when their wetlands will affect, uh, or sorry, when their developments will affect wetlands. Um, and one of the reasons we care about that is that, you know, wetlands are a major feature of the greater Houston area, and they're also uh, um, offer tons of protection from flooding. Um, every time we fill in a wetland, we lose flood protection. And what happens when we see these developments going in in the floodplains, you're not only putting people in an area that's known to be more flood prone, um, but you're covering up wetlands and um, kind of doubling the flood risk. Yeah, that is excellent. I mean, right here in Kingwood, there's some new development that went out that really created floods in areas that hadn't flooded before. So um, I imagine somebody should have contacted you guys. They've shut down that development thus far, but we know that they're going to likely mitigate it with some sort of canals or something to move water that, which means it moves the problems down somewhere else. But, you know, they'll probably solve that problem. It's great to have you. Now, I mean, you, I, I, you use the word regulations a whole lot that folks has to have to follow. We are a very anti-regulation-like type state. And, uh, but we hate when the floods happen. We hate when the freezes happen. We hate all those things. You guys have said that, um, you know, the freeze only indicated a problems that problems that you knew about long ago. So, uh, what are these? Yeah. Oh, so with the freeze in particular, um, you know, people were without water. My family was without water for a week. We had, um, oil water notices after that, which is another form of not, you know, not having water, even when you kind of have it. Um, some people weren't that even that lucky. They were without water for more than a month or two months dealing with broken pipes. Um, that, ref, that whole process um, really, you know, I was just thinking about the city of Houston sanitary sewer problems uh, a lot that week, even as, as I was also trying to just stay warm and keep my family safe. Um, because it is, it's not just, an, you know, it's an issue of aging infrastructure, um, infrastructure that's not adequately prepared for weather, extreme weather. Um, but then also um, in the weeks that followed, it was a problem that clearly had a greater impact on low-income communities and black and brown communities in Houston. Um, same thing with the city of Houston sanitary sewer infrastructure problems. Um, it's something that affects everyone, but some people um, are affected more and have a harder time recovering from it. It is amazing that you prove you prove, first of all, that uh, engagement works. You prove once again that uh, regula good regulations work. You prove that uh, if the grassroots get busy, you can actually get results. You can force results on. Um, this is a, a national program. I want you to tell our audience. Uh, I want you to inspire our audience. I want you to empower our audience to let them know that Anybody who sees a problem can somehow get involved. And if they can't do it on their own, they can find other organizations that have been successful in doing what they've done like yours and be a part of the solutions. Inspire us. Well, 
I am glad you asked that of me because as a lawyer, I'm always so focused on problems and I like to be put in the position um, of having to think about not just solutions, but what's the whole point of this? And so we, we do want, um, we want to live in a world where after a winter storm, Yuri, we're not left without water for a month at a time where none of our neighbors are. Um, we want to live in a city where we're not worried about fecal pollution in our bayous because of aging infrastructure. Um, we want to live in a place where we can continue to build um, homes for a growing population and not worry about those same homes flooding or causing flooding at their next door neighbors, you know, uh, subdivisions. And so I think when thinking about how to get involved in this, um, you know, across the United States, there's nonprofits like ours. Um, there's like-minded people and you just have to find them. Um, I think it's so important not to try to tackle things on your own and to um, build coalitions, whatever that looks like. It could be um, engaging your neighbors to address a problem that um, is affecting your neighborhood in particular or finding people dealing with the same problems as you across um, your city or even across the United States. Um, the internet's great for that. Um, kind of organizing. But I, I mean, we're one organization. We work frequently with the Coalition for Environment Equity and Resilience here in Houston and the 27 organizations that are a part of that. Um, and that's, you know, where our organization has a staff of three, um, a very helpful and necessary crew of interns and fellows, but we're we're tiny. And so being able to collaborate with other organizational partners with community members um, really allows us to have maximum impact. And so I guess I just shared that with you as an illustration of the, the power of people coming together and how necessary it is. A tiny organization with a tiny organization with a $2 billion win ain't so tiny. I think you just prove what the grassroots uh, can do. So uh, folks, be inspired. Uh, if Kristen Schlemmer and her organization can do it, we can all form a part of the solution. Now, I usually ask this last question, which is, what did I, uh, what, what question would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't ask you? So please, it's platforms yours. Gosh, um, I think maybe the only thing I would add um, is when thinking about, uh, because you touched on regulation, um, and I was talking about regulations, particularly in the context of um, wetlands and them getting filled and uh, that causing more flooding. Um, I think the flip side of that coin is that, you know, we across Harris County and across this region all agree that we want our area to be flood resilient. Um, and one way we've done that is we've agreed to pony up $2.5 billion of our own money collectively through the Harris County flood bond. And um, I think that's amazing, um, but it's also really frustrating when you see that as that money is spent to protect us from flooding, there's still developers out there um, putting us in harm's way. And so that's when I think maybe we can appreciate um, uh, the power of regulations is that they actually would, uh, if people are following them um, and if they're you know, as strong as possible, maybe that we as individuals will save more money over the long term and keep ourselves safer over the long term. Kristen Schlemmer, Legal Director, Waterkeeper for Bayou City Water. 
Keeper. Thank you so kindly for being a part of Politics Done Right. You have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much. Folks, I was so impressed with her. Think about this. That is what grassroots action is all about. Deciding you want to make a difference and you know what you do? You make a difference. She and others decided that they were going to take care of making sure that our water in Houston and and vicinity would remain clean and that we would mitigate flood control issues. And they took on that local issue. They centralized on that local issue and they continued. They won a $2 billion, a $2 billion concession from the city. Think about what grassroots mean. When people tell you that being engaged doesn't work, activism doesn't work, these guys proved otherwise. So folks, please remember that you always can make a difference. Don't ever forget that it is in your hands to make that difference. We have a very special guest today. Dennis Kucinich is an author and statesman serving 16 years in the U.S. Congress and was twice a candidate for Presidente during his term as Cleveland mayor between 1977 and 1979. The Fraternal Order of Eagles recognized him as the outstanding public official in America. In recent years, the Washington Post magazine called Kucinich the future of American politics ahead of his time, declared Rolling Stones magazine. Gore Vidal called Kucinich writing as good as Theodore Drazer's. Ralph Nader favorably compares Kucinich writing to the legendary muckraking journalist Lincoln Stephens. The division of light and power Mel's Kucinich's writing excellence with undisputable documentary power and the moral code of a leader who cannot be corrupted. Welcome to Politics Done Right, Senor, former Congressman Kucinich. How are you doing today? Uh, thank you for that introduction. Absolutely wonderful to be with you. I've looked forward to our talk. Well, let me tell you, uh, you know, I want I want to discuss a bit about your book. I don't want to discuss too much of your book because we want to make sure people go out there and get your book. But uh, let, let, let's talk about today's politics. First of all, what are, what are your thoughts about what has happened over the last um, several this last several months? I'm not going to say years because we know the last several years was a disaster. What has happened to this country in the last several months? Well, what, what we've seen is a polarization of the politics that makes it in, in, almost incapable of responding to the basic needs of the people. Now, you know, the uh, COVID, if anything, should have proven to us the weaknesses in our health care system. Um, and yet, even with a pandemic, we couldn't deliver Medicare for all. I mean, it's extraordinary. You know, it's it's like we're not making a connection between public policy and outcomes. <laughs> and so half a million people die as a result. Uh, there's a, um, you know, we're still learning about the effect of our going into Iraq and the effect of our presence in Afghanistan. And while we tell people we're getting out, you know, there's advisors that are still there. Why the game playing? You know, this. The system isn't responding to people's practical aspirations. And granted, you know, COVID has created a, uh, an interruption in many people's lives. It's made it very difficult for people to be able to reconnect with the idea of community because we're all forced into our own 
poems and finally breaking out. But that sense of community is what holds cities together. It's what holds the country together. We're lo- we've lost that. And so we've got to reconnect as a community. We have to see each other as human beings, not as Democrats, Republicans, right, left, whatever. There's things that unite us as Americans we have to reconnect with. We're not, and we're, we're losing that. And as a result, uh, politics are, are not always going to be particularly relevant to what people are dealing with. Well, you know, my contention is that the biggest problem that we have here is, you know, I, I have this, this this claim that I make, and that is most people are good, but most people are corruptible. Most people are indoctrinatable. And in that regards, uh, the powers that be have found a way to do that, which made exactly what you said a realization. That is that we cannot get anything done because each pole is pulling uh pulling up within themselves and not able to move forward. Don't you think our, uh, the, our, our corporate control of media, corporate control of everything is just about responsible for all the ills of our society at this point in time? Oh, I think it reflects, <laughs> it reflects the ills of the society. It's not necessarily responsible. We've got, we've got to kind of get the, get the relationship. It's responsible to the extent that we've created a structure that got that has come that is so far away from uh, the dreams of those who created the uh, Federal Communications Commission uh, and the Federal Communications Act of 1934 said that the electronic media should serve in the public interest, convenience, and necessity, and that the public should have some input into that. That's all been lost. And as media have grown into monopolies, become more powerful, uh, the diversity of opinion is lost. This is where the Internet can be extremely important in presenting opportunities like this one for people to be heard and to go around that, that system. But that system which exists is still very powerful and influences public opinion. This is why you know, we were able to get swept up into a war against, the, against Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11. The media helped to beat the drum. You know, you go back to the New York Times. I went to the New York Times office as a presidential candidate. And uh, in 2003, I had a meeting in their Oak Room. I said, I said look, you're, you know, you don't, there's no proof that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11. I laid out my objections to the war. My leadership was to have brought 125 Democrats together. And they just said, well, you know, what do you know? You know, we're getting all this inside information. Well, their inside information was 100% wrong. Cooked, yes. And, and so I, and the book, by the way, if you, you know, the division of light and power identifies that I, that same process affecting local media when it was covering an issue relating to the city's ownership of a municipal power system. The media beat the drums for a monopoly takeover. And I was standing up there saying, hey, wait a minute. There's no reason to take this over. It's not losing money. It's being it's being attacked by this utility monopoly. And you shouldn't uh, uh, before this. And it turns out it was their advertising dollars that affected their editorial policy and their news policy. I, I document that in the book. So you you take the Cleveland experience and you put it next to the experience of a congressman challenging the war in Iraq. And what the common thread is the ability to be able to, to see clearly what's going on, notwithstanding 
what the corporate media is saying. Well, you kind of jumped the gun, uh, uh, Congressman. So let's go ahead and do this. Um, uh, your book titled The Division of Light and Power. What's the premise of your book? Uh, the premise is the importance of one person standing up and making a difference, how a young person can get into the system and change the system, how uh, you don't have to be changed by the system. And, you know, it's, it's like the entry, the entry into it, uh, I, as I described, uh, you know, people telling me, hey, you can there's a chance to make more money. You're in this new position. Uh, because that is you as mayor of Cleveland. No, before when I was a councilman, the chance okay, to make gotcha. money as a councilman, you know, if you just play ball and uh, campaigns where suitcases full of money suddenly appear or a suitcase. And 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 so, you know, each time you take a step and there's a moral question that is presented to you. But you're told in politics, you shouldn't be concerned about that. There's no values. There's no morals. There's no ethics. It's just politics. And when politics become devoid of that then money rules and you don't have any chance for the public to have a, uh, a word in edgewise or a chance to have their concerns reflected. So, you know, this book, the, the division of light and power, do you have a, do you have a copy right there? Uh, yes. Uh, when, when we put this in the system, you'll have the book will be uh, in front, in, in front of everybody. But yeah, show the book. Let, let's go ahead. The yeah, division of light and power. And um, we'll have a link to the book inside of the blog post that goes along with this, as well as in the, uh, in the thread. Absolutely. Right. Uh, so, you know, but the, but the whole, the overriding uh, point of the book is <laughs> democracy can work, but only if people are willing to take a stand. Right. And, and, and keep, keep in mind this whole idea, idea of privatization. Hey, once the COVID money starts running out, cities are going to look, you know, these corporate interests are going to look at this city and that city and say, well, sell your water system, sell your uh, electric, electric system, exactly. sell your, you know, uh, pedal, pedal your waste, uh, your waste collection services. Uh, you know, there's no end to this privatization. And the point that I want to make is Mayor Tom Johnson in Cleveland was the person who started Muni Light. He was the great mayor of the progressive era. He said that I believe in public ownership of all uh, 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 utilities, service monopolies, yes. because if you do not own them, they will in time own you. Um, you, you know, it, it is it is amazing because you've been preaching that stuff from the time you've been in Congress. Amen. And, uh, and it, it is interesting that they've tried every every possible way to just simply say that you're a socialist because you want there to be a bifurcated economy where the public sector does the public things that the private sector can't do as efficiently. In fact, in, in, in what you just, what you just claim, things like trans, uh, public transportation, et cetera, uh, having the private sector do that profit becomes a, an expense to the public. Expand on that for me, because a lot of people don't well, quite I get it. I, I, I don't know if it's a direct quote, but I was, uh, you know, I uh, heard it, uh, that Lincoln once said, uh, government should do for people collectively what they can't do for themselves. Individually. Exactly. So, so can we, each of us have our own fire service? No. Can we each have our own police uh, service? No. Uh, you go on and on with that thinking. And you, you must have, if you're going to have a city, if you're going to have a community, you must have uh, services that are provided commonly and they should be organized so that they're not just accessible and responsive, but affordable. And that's why people pay taxes. But what's happened is that 
the desire to grab onto what the people own and to commercialize it, to cartelize it, corporatize it, privatize it, produces a greater cost to the people for basic services, electricity, water, uh, sewage, uh, uh, you know, cleaning and control. All those things are, are affected when you go from public ownership to private ownership. Now, the idea of, uh, of that uh, of being a, a socialist uh, um, uh, principle, no, it's not. It's, a, it's, it's basic democracy. And the other part of it is oligarchy and totalitarianism, control, total control of our system by by massive corporate interests. So, you know, this is this book is a stand for democratic governance. It's a stand for people being aware of who's making the decisions in their community and uh, and and how one person, in this case, a very young person could get into the system, not be co-opted by it. And find a way through to public service instead of self-service. So you know the the book becomes a, uh, a not just an allegory that's relevant to today. Well, it uh, is your story. It is your story. Yeah, it is my story. And you know, the, let, let me tell you something that I've always admired with you, Dennis, and that is um, you've been consistent. I mean, uh, you, you talk about the bribes that were coming in Cleveland. You talk about the the possibility that uh, folks would have wanted to assassinate you because of what you're doing. You've stayed true to the progressive mantra. How difficult had you find that? And why is it why so many people find it that difficult to do that? I mean, it seems to me that um, it's a it's a much easier life. It's a much re- more rewarding life. I think you feel that you've lived a much a very rewarding life, don't you? Still at it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm still at it, and you know, it's the freedom to act that any one of us in public life must have, and we lose that freedom when uh, corporate interests latch on to our uh, or attach themselves to our soul. You know, can't, and so. Uh, is it easy to do that? No. Uh, do you raise? Uh, is it easy to raise money for campaigns when you have that approach? No. Uh, but do you have the freedom to represent people? You bet you do, and you have the freedom to always to do the right thing. And to me, hey, uh, you know, you know, what profit a person if they gain the world and lose their soul? I'm not interested. No one's going to buy me for some stupid campaign contributions. Like, please give it up. You know, and, I, and and one of the problems is that, you know, when members of Congress first come to Washington at the beginning of every week, the first stop isn't going to be the floor of the House to get into debate. The first stop is going to be the, the headquarters of each political party where they have minders that watch as, as the members of Congress dial for dollars. So that and they, they are asking interest groups to fund their campaigns. And when they do that, those interest groups, have a, you know, are going to be influential. It doesn't mean everybody's bought, but it means that in some cases, that influence will be overwhelming. And so, you know, it's a bad system, but good people can still find their way through a bad system and challenge it and make it better. And that's, you know, that's what the book's about. Well, you became a Cleveland city councilman. You became a a mayor of Cleveland. You also became a congressperson. So you represented people in three different manners. And now you're representing them as a whole with a book that with the expectation that you'll enlighten their minds to uh, see things differently and participate in the body politics in, in a much more 
engaged manner, we'll say? Well, that's right. And, you know, each one of us, whether we're an office holder or not, can be engaged. But uh, I guess the bottom line is, what do we stand for? Who are we as people? Are, are we willing to take a stand in something in our own lives or in our own community? Um, or do we just be quiet about things that are going on that we don't like? Or not help someone who we think, well, that person gets a little help. They can go somewhere and represent us. You know, these are questions that all of us face every day. You know, all of us are involved in trying to live our own lives. And, and you know, the book's about that, too. Uh, and, you know, you get into public life and it has a tremendous pull on your time and your energy. Uh, but, you know, it should not have a pull on your soul. And and that really this this journey that I describe in the division of light and power is a journey of my soul, not just by my political persona, uh, you know, because. There are so many opportunities to come every day to sell out and take any of them, you know, because I wasn't interested in that. I wasn't interested in some material wealth or in a higher office if I only make this right deal. And when I was mayor, that's the test I had to meet. And I met it. And the book's about not just me, but it's about anybody who has to well, make that kind of a decision. You should vindicate it because the progressive movement has pretty much uh, coalesced onto many of the topics, many of the actual uh, policies that you have always represented for, for eons. Now, I want to get off subject a tad bit, and I want to bring in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for one reason, because you brought up uh, fundraising and, and bring, bringing money into your domain, into your into your campaigns. Do you think that her model is one that can be replicated where uh, you almost have dependence on your supporters and not necessarily on the uh, mass businesses, et cetera? Absolutely. I think that uh, the Congresswoman has demonstrated that an independent approach, uh, independent uh, camp campaigns that are independent of, of uh, political machines, uh, fundraising that's independent of corporate interests, uh, an, an approach to thinking that uh, isn't hobbled by political uh, orthodoxy. Uh, she has shown that it's, you know, it's possible to, to uh, function and to become a force uh, without having to sell out. So that's, <laughs> that's not a small matter. That's, a, that's really important. Yeah, I, I thought I thought I wanted to hear a comment on that. Okay, um, Dennis, I usually ask this as a last question, and it goes as follows: What would you have liked me to ask you, whether about the book or anything else that you'd like our audience to know about you, know about your subject, know about the policies? I always I always get that pause. <laughs> you know, the discussion's so engaging, you know, I'm in the moment here with you. I, I would say um, the decision that I described in a book, would I, uh, if I had to do it all over again, would I, would I make that same decision? Would you? 100%. You know, to me, uh, if some things are right or right, some, some things are inherently wrong. And uh, one of the great misconceptions of our time, uh, particularly that political parties have, I would say particularly that the Democratic Party has, is that, you know, I, well, I believe in separation of church and state. I, I, I also believe that, um, that 
we need we well I, I don't believe in separating state from spiritual values that one must have a, a polar star of ethics that guides you know everyday decisions and I'm not speaking as someone self-righteous holier than now far from it I'm saying that you know you have to have a code that you can live by and and that and when you're in public life if you don't have that if you don't have any any ethical anchor oh you're in for a very very difficult ride former congressman former mayor former councilman statesman and now author of The Division of Light and Power, which you can find in the blog post here. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias. Perfecto, hermano. Gracias. Again, Please remember to keep your community radio station, KPFT, in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends to tune in to 90.1 FM Houston or listen at kpft.org. Keep us on air by donating what you can afford at our website, kpft.org, in the name of Politics Done Right. Once again, remember, you can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash Politics Done Right or on YouTube live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter. For updates, my handle is at Egberto Willis, at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. This is the end of the show. My name is Egberto Willis, and you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at 